Welcome back to the show. My guest this week is Nico Weissman. Nico is head of security and privacy at Lyft and what I call a cybersecurity lifer. You've been in this industry almost forever. When I came in, you guys were already the experienced folks. Um, and I want to talk to you about your career. We got a lot to get to. So I want let, let's start there. You didn't have a formal training in, uh, uh, in security or any sort of computer science, right? Uh, that's actually correct. Uh, first of all, like, thank you for having me here. Uh, yes, I dropped out of engineer school a couple of times. I actually studied journalism. Really? Uh, for four years. Yeah, I didn't finish my degree. The only thing that was missing was the thesis, but I got my daughter reading that. But yeah, I don't have any cybersecurity training of anything. Uh, I guess binaries were my, uh, most of my training were coming from reverse engineering and, you know, being in the industry for like 20 plus years. And you come from that Argentina school. So I, can we start there? Can we start there? Because I've had this, I've had Ivan Arce on my podcast. I've spoken to Cesar Cerudo, Max, all the old uh, uh, core security guys over the years. And something that's always fascinated me is this concentration of really solid security talent out of a very, very small part of down, way down in South America. There have been some, you know, there have been some conversations about why or how or, or what's the reason for that. Do you have a, an, an opinion or a thought on why Argentina is such a hotbed? Every Argentina will have their own theory, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, my theory, and I'm coming from like a different path from Ivan and all the core people. Uh, surprisingly, I never join core or never work for core. I, I was going to ask you about that too, because it's, yeah, I was going to ask you about that as an Argentinian who went in the other direction, because you guys were competitive, like super competitive between core and immunity, right? Mm-hmm. There was like no information being shared, which is a shame to be honest. Like I, I wish like we were like in better relationship, but especially at the beginning now, like a big friends of like a lot of ex-core people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, back then there was like almost no information share. I have a couple of friends in, in there, but uh, nothing like a group of people that were, uh, you know, reversing MS patches and stuff like that, uh, which, which is a shame to be honest. So going back to your original question, my theory around like why there's so many like good security uh, people in Argentina, I think it's really with like Argentina has a strong middle class, which obviously give you like access to computers in your early ages. Uh, and then there's a, diff- a similar aspect that we have with some uh, countries in Europe, like France, for example, that uh, in Italy, which also have like really good good talent, uh, is that there is um, there is a, a thing about the culture of Argentina being very um, against the law or like not like uh, fully complying with the law. And obviously, this came from the years with like Argentina has like the dictatorship, and so like there was a lot of uh, obviously for for obvious reasons, uh, the people that were in power, uh, the 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 the. The country was against the people that were in power because they they basically came out as a coup, and so so you're talking about that culture. Hold on a second, because you're glossing over there. It's like uh, that you're talking about that period from in the mid seventies to the eighties exactly. when they had this disappearing exactly. children, all this the whole poly- geopolitical problem. You think that that's specifically tied to this? As well? I would say that um, it was this that built into the culture this idea of like rebelliousness. Mm, Rebelliousness, right. exactly. I would say, like, we're not complying with the law, which is tr- not true in a lot of cases, but that rebelliousness, it was part of, like, you know, coming out from dictatorship 
and then you know obviously that build into our grandparents and parents and then build into us and so and, that's you know, a mindset you you believe that that's a mindset that drove you to to do piracy on, on on technology because when i spoke to ivan he believes that the fact that you couldn't afford licensing for a lot of these products and a lot of these technology things that you were forced to go look for documentation mostly in english so you have to figure out translations which is why it's so fascinating to me uh, that you know so paint the picture of for, for that time when you first came in and how a lot of that kind of rebelliousness and that mindset drove this completely completely and one thing that we'd add uh, uh, is that we also have this like first wave of like really talented people like Ivan Hera Why? and other Why, people though? yeah idols completely completely uh, and that they build that like first wave of people and that is sort of like a waterfall right like you have like this group of talented people that people admire and then like grow up a second wave and then a third wave fourth wave and all of that i would say like i'm second wave in terms of like so you view those guys as the pioneers peto and and ivan and those guys as like the original mm-hmm. pioneers of cybersecurity there right completely i i know ivan before i actually know ivan he has like a nickname uh, i don't know if like he, he wanted to make it public or not, not even why his nickname was Oppy, which is was he was part of like this like hacker crew ah, i did not know uh, that Very he good. Probably, probably he's gonna kill me <laughs> saying that but uh there's like a e-sign that they used to have and so i really admire that that team which was called uh hack it by alls Uh, and it was very, very rebellious, very hackerish, and that's where like a lot of like interesting that and like I was also looking at the Spanish crews and the European crew. Like I was always a big fan, especially on the exploiting side, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. which you know it's always a shame that um, there's not a lot of like history books uh, focus on some of the uh, German, Dutch. Uh, yeah, and that's uh, why crews. I bring up Argentina here because you know I don't know if you've been it. paying attention like. Joseph Men's book, Cult of the Dead Cow, right? It kind of, it, it amplifies the work of Loft and a lot of their US-centric security uh, folks who are pioneers in this industry as well. But there's a, there's a general feeling that a lot of important non-Americans were kind of lost and forgotten in this. And not only from that book, but just generally. Contributions from Argentina has been told for, for the most part. I think Nicole Perlrott's book mentions it. She had a New York Times piece on it. There's been, a, there's been some interest there. But out of Australia, New Zealand, uh, in Spain, parts of France, parts of uh, big, big parts of Europe, there's been significant contributions to security that has not quite been recognized. And do you feel, sometimes do you guys feel left out? Um, I think that for some things, uh, we, we, we feel a little left out. Like sometimes you don't see like representation on like the CFP or Black Hat, for example, like the committee, like some, some, there's a couple of like, uh, Latin people, but not enough. Based not, on, like, not the properly representative, right? Exactly. Exactly. But I do see that, uh, I, I feel like in, in a way, like, as you mentioned, like Argentina were a little bit more lucky and represented across the industry in the US, like people know, like there is a strong, uh, there was always like strong teams coming out from Argentina. But I, I do see that lack of representation from like France, uh, the Netherlands, uh, Germany, uh, and, and even Spain too. Like there was, uh, my, my idols, like uh, if I would say like in, in my early days, like one of my biggest idols was like Max, Max with like double X, the one that came out with all these like fantastic Linux, he power flow backs. Uh, he actually worked for Core, Uh, and really? actually moved to Argentina for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and uh, Max, uh, Dvorak, Creepy, uh, and like some other European people that were writing these like fantastic exploits that I was, you know, love with. Like we were like people were working for months to make like this perfect reliable exploit without any signature and things like that. And I always like admired that crew that obviously do it for the love of it. Um, Why did you choose to go the offensive route? I mean, it, there was there was no option back then, right? Like the I was I was started it started to me as a hobby. So like as a hobby, doing what, is a, what do you mean so, by that though? When you say it starts as a hobby, you start like learning to code, you start writing scripts, you're just reading exploits and trying to figure out this chess match. What is what do you mean by hobby? Uh, by hobby, I would say that um, I started in the underground, uh, like you know, uh, chatting on different places, understanding other people exploit, uh, having our own like uh, hacking crew, even though like we were very harmless. But you know, having this group of people where you learn with, uh, collaborate, and but it was never an so, ambition like, to make a career out of this. That's what you mean by it was a hobby at the time, meaning it was just completely. a fun intellectual exercise for you to hang out online and be this, you know, this kid who is just learning all the scripting stuff completely completely there were when i when i originally joined i there was not i mean maybe there was a core but it was like in the very early days of probably like four or five people so there was not even a possibility to start a career and there was not even like a security team on companies back then like it was more of like an it people uh and so i, I as i was growing that's where like some of the security teams were like built into the industry so for me it was not an option as a career and nowhere at the time there was a cybersecurity education out of university. There was no option to go to school to learn this, right? Everybody's self-taught. You're on IRC sharing code and sharing techniques and, and, and everything is kind of being taught in the background and in the dark, right? I mean, that's what the scene looked like. Completely, completely. And there was not a lot to be taught. Like even if you put together like a cybersecurity school, there was not a lot to be taught back then. Like a lot of... Uh, the industry was built in those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was being like created whole, like, on the fly, right? Exactly, exactly. That's why uh, most of our education was, you know, coming out of like reversing binaries, like writing exploits, reading other people's tools. That's where, you know, some of the education was coming from. Um, and and that has changed though, because I, you know, I was really looking at 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 this transition to a more mature industry, if you want to call it that. Coming out of that, everyone being self-taught in this IRC world and guys just dropping. We went through the warm era. We went through the whole Microsoft world. But somewhere around 2000, universities started adding courses. NYU had this NYU Tandon Engineering School. I believe Purdue had something. And here, especially here in the US, you started to see this transition where kids were starting to be educated into cybersecurity. And then a new generation comes in have you seen have you seen things significantly improved since that kind of transition because i every headline i look at there's a there's there's a massive breach there's a massive ransomware attack there's a massive supply chain attack it just feels like everything is on fire i I definitely agree that we improve a lot of things um the there's also like one thing to mention also is like aside from like the uh former uh, like formal education there is also like streamers talking about uh security like this fantastic live overflow streamer that has like this very easy to go through youtube uh lessons and all that um definitely things has been improving um the, the 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 thing that goes along with improvement is also that the attack surface has also ex- 
extinct quite a lot, right? Because uh, in the past, there was only like small amount of targets. Now, like everyone is online, which also helped with that like, data breach. Um, the but I would say like in general it improved. Uh, there is much uh, like every company is a little bit or is is much more security uh, conscious than it was back in the days. You heard there's it. still there's still a lot of work to be done. There's still a lot uh, of problems. We'll get to it in a second. But you had a 20 year career at Immunity. I I, I think it, it it's close to 20 years, uh, which was largely in the trenches, mostly exploit writing. Um, sort of, I, I actually went through pretty much every, um, position, at immunity for, uh, you know, sometimes I was doing products. I, I wrote like some stuff on canvas. Um, I, I, I was managing some of the, some, some products too, at some point in time, I, and then like the last seven years I was in charge of professional services. So like a lot of like consulting, contesting, uh, and application reviews and all of that. What was, what was in the water at immunity that made you guys such like a close knit crew that it just appeared, it appeared to us on the outside looking in. And I know, I don't know if you have the tattoo. Do you have the immunity tattoo? I do. I you do. do have the tattoo. So Dave Vitel mm -hmm. told me on this podcast that, you know, that there was this whole tattoo thing and, 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 but, but there was this culture of closeness. Where does that come from? Um, I, I would definitely say that that started with Dave. Like uh, he built the company as a family, but not in a bad way. Sometimes like when people like build companies as a family, it has a lot of like negative impact into things. Like people will, you know, don't want to leave because like they feel that we will be out of this like cultural group or like cult group in a right, right. sense. Immunity was never built in that way. It was more of like family being there for the people uh, like we have people that had went through a lot of divorces and, and, and like multiple problems. And we like one of the things that was built uh, in the company itself was like to support it, uh, to be like very empathetic. Mm -hmm. And we were always like a small um, company, right? Like we, we never uh, accept any like BC money or any type of like investors. So we they're always like we grow as our revenue grows mm -hmm. and, and that like keep, to grow like very small, even though like we spend years uh, in the industry, um, and and that also I think that helps like not having like any like cultural change during the life of the community. And it was always like a very tight group. Like we share information between each other. We sort of like keep the same like '90s culture, like the IRC culture, like the the way we communicate. Uh, you see a lot of people on Slack nowadays, but like. Immunity was built on IRC, but that's how we, we, like the company communicate. And I think that if you go to Immunity right now, probably still using IRC as like the main sort of communication. And we keep that like uh, rebellious spirit uh, through the company, which was great for like for the culture. I asked if you were mostly doing exploit writing there because Immunity, for some very interesting, and I don't know the reason, but interestingly, Immunity never got tagged with that kind of zero day broker uh, 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 identity kind of uh, perception. Uh, and I asked Dave about it and he was like, we were, we were, we were pretty open with what we were doing. We were building a penetration testing platform. We were doing this, but a book just came out and there was been, you know, constant talk about this writing of exploits and selling it to governments and where did it go into the wrong places? How do you feel, um, you know, immunity escape that kind of, bad perception 
We, I mean, definitely David's right in the sense that we were always like transferring of the work that we were doing like from the beginning. Uh, I think that um, they pioneered the idea of like a vulnerability sharing club mm-hmm. uh, in, in like the early 2000s. Uh, but like the, the, the reality is that uh, that side of the business was very small in comparison to the other things that we were doing. Like we have three, four products that we were uh, selling to the, to, to the Big enterprise uh, commercial customers. side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then like the our professional service, we have like 25 to 30 uh, consultants working with us with like a lot of like financial industry and other areas. So like, to be honest, like we, we were everywhere. We were not just on, on, that, on that business. But the exploit writing part of it is a sexy thing. What, what, can you share what was like your favorite exploit of that time during that time? Something that you may have worked on or something that just constantly comes back in your mind as like a really fantastic piece of work? Uh, you got me there. I can't think of anything specific. Um, I, I would say that um, I will talk about one technique that I, I came out in my um, heap overflow phase. Uh, I was like for the public that don't know me like one of like my my focus was on heap uh, overflow exploitation. Uh, I originally started with Linux, and then one day out of the blue, they was like, you need to move to Windows, and I hate it at the first <laughs> uh, weeks. And then I you know, obviously started loving it. And um, there was this like f- a trick uh, that I, I discovered through exploiting this uh, vulnerability in, um, 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 I forgot the name of the, the newsletter protocol. I think it's NNTP, like completely, um, plug it for my mind, and um, the 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 Windows heap has these like bit mask where they like tag if uh, if a chunk on the on 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 a on a fillis was uh, empty or not, like the fillis was empty or not. And um, I realized a way to like set that uh, bit mask, like flip one bit, right. and just by flipping that one bit, I was able to like obtain like full uh, code execution. And, and it was like, just like theoretically from the point of like, just being able to flip one bit into a remote process, uh, you were able to get like full uh, remote execution to me was like fantastic. What does that feel like? I've, I'm, I'm interested in that thrilling dopamine hit moment, right? And, and I've always yeah. wondered about this with exploit writers. When you actually get a, an exploit to, be, to fire, clean, reliably, nothing crashes. What does that feel like? Is it something you sit there and you run again and again? Like I'm a writer, right? If I write the perfect paragraph, I'll reread it 10 times because it's, it gives you that thrill. Is it the same? It's, it's definitely the same. It's definitely the same. I, I actually uh, give a, a keynote, uh, the first keynote uh, on the first infiltrate, I, I was actually keynoted. And um, one of the things I uh, sort of like, explain or like describe in, the, in that keynote was the roller coaster of feelings that writing an exploit means because uh that, what is thrill, that? explain that explain that yeah so like it's, it's it's almost like the different faces uh there's like so many faces because um i can't recall exactly the, the ones that i highlight but there's like the moment where like you start the project you're excited about it you know like a lot of optimism a lot of optimism. A lot of ideas lot of about how to start, how to get moving, right? Learning the protocol, learning how things work, like reading a lot of documentation, ex- extremely excited. And then like, like you start testing things and like reversing and looking for things. 
Uh, but then like you realize that there's no progress and you can spend like months without progress. Nowadays it's worse than it was in the early days. Like nowadays, like, uh, I don't know, like looking at WebKit, looking at uh, the different browsers is, it's, it's so complicated. I don't even want to do that. If I if it was young, I would be like, I'm, I'm not going to write exploits. But um, so it's a lot of like, uh, so then they're like, you get into like this depression phase where like you're spending too much time and there is, there's always back in your mind the, the a moment we have to like balance it's like, I'm spending too much time on this binary on this server or should just drop and like move to a different target. And then you have this, and, and then you have this sunk cost feeling where you feel like, oh, I've already put three months into it. And now you're grappling with, is it, am I going to just throw that three months away or is something going to flip that changes this? And help me understand how does that flip happen? Because at some point you get, there's a breakthrough, right? Completely, completely. And it's, it's, it's like a learning curve, which is like extremely stiff. Like you go and go and go and then suddenly like you find something and then like, you know, this is the thing I'm going to be able to like, uh, you know, explore this thing, but then like th- that whole process start again, right? Because like one thing is finding bugs, the other one is exploiting it. So right. you are exploiting the bag and you go back to zero. Like you need to came out with all these like different primitives into like, how can this be exploited? Like, do you need an info leak? There might be like a hard mem leak and all kind of like things like that. And then like you, you start from scratch and then like the time started running again, right? Like you <laughs> clock is running again, Because right? otherwise it's worthless. And so like you start like the, the clock start again and you're already in like to the optimism phase and then like depression phase and then you finally able to uh, to exploit and everything's working and like ready to go. And then that lasts like two, three days and then like you go back to zero and starting from the scratch. Well, wait, 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 again. you're skipping over the fun part. Like w- what is that thrill like when it finally runs? Is it, is it uh is it like a basketball player hitting a game-winning shot? Like, take me through like the emotion of it. Um, I you know I, I have never played basketball. I would say like <laughs> play soccer. So I would say yeah. definitely is is like scoring a goal. Sometimes like you feel like so excited that you have you have the feeling of like I need to go like move from the computer, just take a walk because I need to like process like the information because it's it's a three four month right. work. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those like research where you don't know that it's going to end. Like we might not have, like never finish your research. So like you start with a premise, but you never know like if what you're researching is going to be possible or not. And I don't know, like, it's like writing a book, right? Areas. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like, you know, that if you continue writing, like you will end the book, right? Like yeah. there's, I mean, it might be a bad book, but like, you know, that <laughs> at some point it. you'll put that final full stop, right? Yeah, so, but in here, like, you never know if you're going to finish or not. So, like, that's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's really strong, uh, thrilling. That's uh, a good, it's a good story also to give people the reality of things like pawn to own. When a guy comes there and he presses a button and everyone thinks Firefox was hacked in 10 seconds, right? The guy spent six months looking for the bugs, working on exploits, not, like, figuring out the chain, like, the, the reality is a lot tougher than just everything is exploited easily. And it's a matter of consistency. Like obviously there, there are some fantastic people that has like great skills, but the, I think that one of the better skills that an expert writer sh- should always have is like being able to deal with frustration because there's a lot of frustration. And, and sometimes it's like you pass that like two, three weeks of frustration and then you actually, you know, get to find the bug or get to exploit it. And if, there's a lot of people that are quitting there, like between those two, three uh, frustration weeks. And 
it's not just an expert, right? Like I would say that for like a lot of people in the bug bounty industry are having the same problems where like they're like targeting this company and they're like spending two or three weeks like learning how the infrastructure work and all of that. And then they might quit these two or three weeks because they're like, oh, I'm not finding anything. And like they might end up like finding like a 30K bug out of it if they just spend like two more weeks on that. But Right, and then they'll find out that, that and then they'll find out it's out of it, it's out of scope, or they'll, they'll only get paid three hundred dollars, and it becomes a whole thing. But you know, there's it's interesting how guys have actually made a business out of that by you know understanding infrastructure in such a detailed way that they can just hit a target and they'll know exactly where the bugs are to go find their bug bounty money. I mean, the guys who are doing it professionally. Yeah, some of the people that you see doing it professional, they're like targeting a bad class. Like, so they yes. will go, like they find a bad class that nobody else has found. They out, make it automatic. And then they will and you just, just automate it across the board. Into the just, whole industry. Yeah. <laughs> just take money across the board for the same bug, bug class, which is what mm-hmm. I, I want to pivot to that because you've talked about this as well. It's that the importance of us not necessarily chasing vulnerabilities to patch, but looking for bug classes to eliminate. And we yeah, used to call this the SDL back when I was first interviewing you guys back in 1999, 2000, we called it the SDL. Today, everything is shift left, shift left, and kind of eliminate bugs at an earlier stage. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what you mean when you say eliminate an entire bug classes and how that like changes the game? Yeah, it, it took me, just, just to mention, it took me a while to uh, make my pieces with the shift left movement because I, I was definitely interested. I was like, we already discussed like 20 years ago, uh, Microsoft came out with the um, secure development lifecycle. Now let's just change names and make it this cool like shift left name. But uh, yeah, so. But, like, but, but, but we're living in different times though, right? I mean, we just discussed this. When you were writing exploits <laughs> yes. back then, you didn't have to chain four, you didn't have to chain exploits for four different vulnerabilities and jump out of a sandbox here and there, right? So we're in a different period altogether. So in, uh, as much as we like to laugh at the kids today with their new shift left things, they're in a whole different world of cloud and microservices and complexity that's unimaginable. And, and don't get me wrong, like de- definitely like the DevSecOps movement have improved security like crazy. I wish we had that 20 years ago. Um, the, the way I think about that is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of like scaling the team, like because there, there's no matter how big your security team is, like the radio of like engineers versus uh, security team is always going to be uh, on, on the wrong side. Like you'll never have enough uh, people to like actually do a penetration test for each of your services, especially since like deployment is happening like right, every right. day of the week or more than w- once a week. So, so more than once a day. So the, there's a couple of, uh, of tools, both open source and commercial that, um, you know, obviously came out with like static analysis tool and we have static analysis tool for a while, right? Like it is not nothing new. Mm-hmm. I think that what came out I think that the new thing that is coming is the concept of like the feedback loops, which is, I mean, the concept of feedback loops is not new, but applied to securities, I think where things get interesting because now it's not just like this um, commercial companies, you send them the code and they came out with this like huge uh, report that had no understanding of your co- the software context of any kind. And you know, there's a lot of friction between the security team and the developer team because, like, you have these requirements and you're spending uh, days trashing some of these uh, findings they have. You know, in fact, like at Immunity, at one point in time, like we were like there was a couple of clients that were like 
rather than like looking at our code, can you just go and do a triage of these like huge uh, SaaS tool right. uh, report? And I think that the interesting part is like the customization side, which I don't know why like the traditional SaaS tool didn't have that as an option. I think that's where things get interesting and not customization as we used to think about it where like the company will have these like two or three people that will customize it for you. They leave it there and then completely forget about it because that obviously bring the same like level of friction. The interesting part is like when we can start codifying the alerts in a more, in a way that not only the security team are actually like building those alerts, but also the, the developer themselves are finding that. And, and that's where like the security team start, starts scaling, right? Because like you, the security team knows really like they know security, right? And so like they are constantly like looking at like what the industry is looking like. They're looking at like CVs. They're finding like looking at bugs that other people are 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 finding. And they also like part of the bug bounty program, right? Like they are the ones that receive the bug bounty. So they start like understanding the different patterns that your own team is, is or anti patterns that the their own team is is building. And that's where like the security team is like building those rules that are specific to the context of your of your company or your software or your framework that you're using. And that's where like you know, the amount of like false positives are being reduced and where like these two are making a lot of sense. Go, just going back a little bit to this elimination of bug classes. Can, we've been talking about this for years. We've been talking about this for many, many years. The, the, the idea of removing design bugs or logic bugs or just classes of vulnerabilities. Have we done that in any way? Or there, like, can you point to a handful of existential uh, 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 things that we've eliminated? We, Have we eliminated we any bug classes since 2000? <laughs> I, I don't want to say... Yes, because like then you came out with like the last vulnerability on F5 and it was like a plain stack overflow. Because I was going to say stack overflow. I feel like we pretty much covered that. But then like F5 came out, I'm like, no, I have a uh, stack overflow without canaries. Maybe we haven't eliminated it, but we've mitigated them, some of them very well. We mitigate a lot and, and eliminated, I would say also to like most of the modern compilers that like, have a, a good, strong uh, detection of like most of the traditional vulnerabilities for sure. And there's a lot of either like um, frameworks that have built better, um, better security. And so like they, they made it in such a way that uh, they build it as a sort of like security by default, which is the other aspect that is important in right. security. They build it as a guardrail. So like now developers, no matter how much they want to make a, a vulnerability happen, it's like much more work and they have to go like completely out of the framework to make like bad things happening. And we have done a lot of really amazing work. And when I say we, it's not just security. A lot of the developers and engineers have done a lot of that amazing work. Uh, so I, I do have to say that, um, and this is something that we all as, as the security industry should contemplate on. Uh, a lot of the advancing security hasn't coming up from like, I mean, I, I'm, a little, I'm being a little bit unfair here, but uh, haven't come like fully out of the, um, Pure player like, security, pure exactly. security industry. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, I mean, there's a lot of like really amazing companies that came out from uh, different security people. Like Duo is a good example. Like right, you have right. like Jono and, and, and Don. Guys, right? Yeah, yeah, they have that amazing. But, but 
um, for example, Okta or Althero, you know, as far as I know, they're not from like, secure, like specifically secure person. It's someone that, that thought that there's a need in the market and all that. And there's a, I don't a start, of those. Don't start with how the venture capitalists are creating companies on the fly. No, 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 That's not what no, we're no, talking no. about. I'm not going that way. Okay. And what I'm saying here is that I think that uh, we should have done better in terms of creating rather than distracting. Because some of the like offensive movement was more of like, we're not building, we're like showing what the problems are. And then like we're saying goodbye, good luck. And, you know, see you next uh, month when you're patching your next like Microsoft iteration. So I think that the mea culpa here is that we should have done more into the building side of, of things over the years. We are in 2021. Did you think we would have solved memory safety by now? Uh, and, 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 and here's why I'm asking. Back then, folks had said, Cybersecurity industry is not going to be here anymore. Like as we as we figure out all these mitigations and we figure out and we solve memory safety and memory corruption and buffer overflows, we're not going to be here anymore. And a lot of guys felt like, oh my gosh, this is an existential thing for me as a career. We're in 2021. I look at Google's zero day tracker database, and 90 percent of all the bugs there are memory corruption issues. Right? We're still. We're still. Are we ever? I don't even know how to ask this question, but are you surprised, one, that we're still here dealing with memory safety issues? And the larger issue, are we, are we ever going to address it fully or are we just constantly playing this game of paying for the cost of the performance that, that addresses this? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a funny thing that you mentioned because like every three years, like we heard the same thing. Like this is the end of like offensive security. Like even like when... Uh, Whoever came out with canaries uh, on on the stack over on stack overflows on the stack, sorry, because uh, I can't recall like exactly who it was, uh, but there was like many people. Uh, when we say that, everyone was like, "This is the end of, of security." Like in in two years, like every memory corruption will be dead. Like we should start like focusing on something else. And time passed, and like some new bypass came, and the same thing happened with like DP ALSR. Uh, with like control flows nowadays. CFI, so like, uh, uh, all these mitigations and roadblocks have been bypassed. So it's clear that we are playing this, they were playing this game of catch up, getting this game of catch up. Where, where are yes, we now? We're at CET now, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But one thing that I should mention, and this is something that Andrew Cushman uh, said on a presentation uh, and always resonate in my mind. For is the that folks listening, Andrew Cushman used to be a big MSRC, Microsoft security guy uh, who was right in the trenches during the Windows warm era and the fights with security researchers over the years. Just a little bit of context. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that he said that always resonated to me like during my whole career is that we're not trying to fix all the security problems, what we're trying to do, especially if you think about it on that, that perspective from Microsoft is like making the economy of writing exploit more expensive. And if you think about it, like how expensive is to write a Chrome exploit, like the level of expertise that you need in terms of skill, like you need like a year or two years to ramp up the knowledge that needs to be, you need to have to, in order to like fully understand the, 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 uh, the crumbs, how Chrome works by itself. And then you need to like spend an, another six months or whatever uh, to find like four different vulnerabilities to go through the different like steps to get actually get remote, full remote code execution. So yes, memory corruption are still there, but it definitely are much more expensive. And the, the, the requirement that you need to get into, into writing those exploits 
have been like much higher than it was. However, I do have to say me coming out from a lot of like years of um, export writing, we're still like too focused on memory corruption, but there are other security problems, like millions of security problems. And I think that's another thing that we should contemplate on is like, can we stop? Like we all like, like there's so many like Chrome bugs or like so focused on like iPhones bugs and things like that. I, I get it, important. There's like so many other things going on in security. I know, I know security has a million problems to solve, but when you look at a zero day tracker and you look at what big supply chain issues and some of the big, big, big breaches, consequential breaches, Again, it's coming back to memory corruption issues, and it just feels like this is never a problem that's going to be solved. And there's a school of thought that we have to go rewrite every piece of code we have in like some memory safe languages and so on. Where are you on that? Or do you feel like we're just going to be continuing to tread water and drive forward uh, with these point mitigations and like little roadblocks? Or do we or do you believe we should think about rewriting everything? that like the the rewriting is going to slowly start happening it's already uh, I mean, like, it's, it's already happening it's already happening like, i don't think we should like stop everything and start like rewriting but some of that is already happening and you know bugs are still going to be there they're not going to be memory corruption there might be like logical bugs and and that will be enough like what you're aiming for is like the data it's not like the having access to a process right, right and right. so like as far as like the, there's going to be data, there's going to be logic bugs that we can will continue going through the path. Right. So even if it's not it. memory safety, there's going to be a pathway or, or, or an attack class because there's always going to be that attack surface, right? Completely. But following in my final thought, like related with like, we should all focus on other things. One thing that I always that resonated to me on the SolarWinds case, uh, and is maybe it's not, it's more on the on the defensive side rather than the offensive side, but is that we have like a lot of like companies were attacked, right? Like Microsoft, Fire, and all that. And the, what what it was really funny to me when I when I see like this whole uh, thing happening, it was that Corp Security was the one that actually detect Solar Wind because like what happened in Fire Eyes, which Fire Eyes, I would say like if you, if if you're talking between the two of us, is like one of the most the companies that are investing the most in threat intelligence should be FireEye itself because that's their services and they have, I'm assuming they have like a lot of fantastic knowledge uh, on like threat intelligence. The first name that comes to mind, right? If you think about the first name that comes to mind that like forensics and that kind of threat intelligence at scale. Exactly. Did did that help them in any way to detect uh, SolarWinds? No. It It was was two-factor authentication. And two-factor authentications. So like maybe we need to start thinking about like investing a little more into like these traps, uh, right? It, that level of traps, exactly. Or like a little more like a, our CM maybe needs to be focused more on like behavior related with the context of your company. Uh, and I, I and, and that's that's what I heard the most because like everything that came out out of SolarWind was all about of like this is how you detect. Uh, if your code was backdoored by the solar wind actors, this is how this is the like millions of IOCs. It's the actual playbook, right? It's the actual yes. playbook about how to do it, which is good. It's good, but like, have anyone start saying like maybe you should enable like some level of alert on your duo to see if someone is adding an, a second uh, an extra uh, second factor authentication on your nothing mentioned that, which I think is like something that we are missing and it's like the fundamentals that we need to start like being more focused on. 
I, I completely agree with you. We just had a water supply hack where, where someone was trying to put lye in the water here in Oldsmar, Florida, right? And when they came out with the recommendations afterwards, it was the most basic, simple, fundamental things like use two-factor authentication, basic password hygiene. And those are the things that are causing like super like high-end consequential hacks. And again, we talk about zero days and it's easy and exciting and sexy to write about zero days. A lot of companies are just being smacked because someone clicked on a link, right? It's, you don't mm-hmm. need zero day in many cases. Completely. It's the same thing with like threat intelligence, right? Like there's this, like there's so many like investment on like threat intelligence reports and all of that. And if you like explore some of the companies, like there's some things that I, I find like very great. Like they are like sniffing these like Telegram channels and like ah, the dark web stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and some of them are like just like dudes hanging out. Like we used to hang out in the, in the early twenty. Like, and it's not. Is, is, they're not doing anything harmful and they like offer you like this access to this data that you can like, actually like, you know, search the deep web and like find if you like someone is talking about you and they charge a lot of money and like the pe- there are a lot of companies buying this stuff and like investing in these like shiny things where like there's still a lot of like, work on the fundamentals that need to be happening. You, after a long career as an exploit writer working on an offensive security form, made the complete switch the other direction. You went first to, was it GitHub? Mm-hmm. You went first to GitHub and then GitHub acquired SEML and you kind of folded into it there? Help me understand. Actually, I, I, I joined SEML first. And I joined GitHub SEML acquired. first. Mm-hmm. And then you joined GitHub and that acquired, got into the GitHub security lab. While you were there, you guys experienced a supply chain hack. We this octopus not, malware scanner thing. Yes, 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 yes. It was not like target to GitHub itself. It was target to like these like Java projects. Yes, but I when so you've gone through this this the implications of a supply chain th- uh, uh, incident. Is that mm-hmm. the worst? Is that like someone's worst day as a defender? Oh. There's like so many worst days. Uh, <laughs> I think that the worst days depending on the uh, data that gets breached. Right. And uh, I would say that it's not about like the technology because uh, there are like multiple ways you can hack into well, I feel like there's such a helplessness about being breached and hacked uh, through no fault of yours, through the supply chain, through some weird vendor relationship thing down the line. It just feels like mm-hmm. a bad day when you've done everything right and someone else is shortcoming you know completely and, and that's exactly what happened with solar winds too like like everyone has like solar wind up to date and like they were doing whatever they need to be exactly. done and you know that happened and yeah there's you know, these kind of things are always happening so that's why like where uh you know defensive divs came into place and you know having a strong secure team and and all of that so all the same basic foundational security advice still stands, right? Still stands. Complete, complete. It's still an entire problem. And like we've, done a, we've done a really good job of raising the bar for attackers, raising the cost for attackers. You just mentioned it. So then why are there so many freaking breaches and ransomware attacks everywhere? What is, why is there this disconnect between we've gotten so much better browsers have to get five exploits to target browsers, and then every freaking day it's some massive breach or some massive data dump somewhere. What's going on? Security is hard. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Uh, 
the it's it requires a lot of buying from executives it requires a lot of buying from like different teams like you need like strong collaboration across like the whole company and and building that collaboration is is like one of the hardest part you can have as a security team um like sometimes like you, no matter how much you are defending like you have a strong hole on the infrastructure side there might be like someone that came out with this, like this shadow IT network that you were not aware of. And then like, that's where like incidents happening. So like, there's a lot of weak and- spots. There's just a l- too many weak spots, even though we have, we have improved things and mitigations are everywhere. There's just way too many weak spots and attack surfaces have expanded in. It's huge. It's huge. And like, there's also like, with the, especially with the technology companies, there is like a level of like, uh, you want people to grow. You want people to deploy fast. You want people to experiment. You want people to research, and that sometimes go against like some yeah. of the normal security yeah. mindset, which is like you know, you need to you, you you have no access to anything. You don't need to have a root to your machines. If we listen you to security people, we would unplug a computer, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Completely, completely. What does the head of security and privacy at Lyft do? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I the, the, the my position is basically now this is a completely defensive role, right? Now you are literally and 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 talk to me a little bit about how your offensive mindset and that four months of living through the hell of figuring out an exploit and figuring out this chess match and jujitsu game, right? Help me understand how that helps you now with uh, putting on a defensive hat, completely different from what you've done in your career. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm still processing some of that work. To be honest, like I'm I was surprised to find you as head of security and privacy at Lyft. Like that was the last place I expect of someone with your background. I have to be honest, I'm enjoying it a lot. Like the the challenges that we have on the defensive side, especially in a company like Lyft that is like so engineer focused, and like we have so many like extremely good engineers. Uh, I I'm learning. I'm like I'm really enjoying the role. To be honest. Um, my with your priorities what is your task and your priorities how do you view your priority as the head of security and privacy at lyft i think that's one of the most important things um, and and i always been uh, the, the and this is coming from immunity days the immunity was always like very horizontal there was not like uh top to bottom in any way so like i'm i'm, I'm keeping the same and this is something that you know, lyft also like really encourage and I'm, 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 that's how like, I'm thinking about like our, our teams. Like there's not like top to bottom, more like bottom to top. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I have done a lot of the work that, you know, people in my team have done. Some of them I have done, haven't. Um, and um, the way I say is like, and, and, and this should be for like pretty much like every, everyone that is running a, a security and privacy program is more of like setting the vision. That's, that's what we should like. Setting set it or vision. selling it? Setting it, okay. setting it. Because selling yeah, it is also an automation as well when you have to go to your, your executives and your board and sell it. So that's why I, I wanted to differentiate it, between... They go two. along. They definitely, they definitely go along between each other. Like you have to sell it to your team. You have to sell it to the executives. You have to sell it with other stakeholders uh, because like if you're not selling the right visions to like the infra team, then like you're pretty much screwed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that one of the, 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 the best things that like someone is running a program is like setting that vision of like what we are looking for, what we want this year, what we want in like two or three years, how, how, how the security and privacy team will look like in the future. And that's, that's some of that my work has been done. Also like, you know, building the culture, uh, making sure that, you know, everyone is aligned with our objectives, like building a roadmap, all, all, all type of work like that. 
Do you have a couple more minutes? Because I got a there's a, there's a couple of things I don't want to let you go before um before we touch. How much more time we have? Yeah, yeah, I do have a couple of minutes. Yeah. Okay. Like uh, Silicon Valley has this thing about build versus buy, uh, buying security technologies, and we talked about this whole VC startup land. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about there's this there's this mindset among some Silicon Valley startups, especially the rich ones like the Lyft and the Ubers and the Netflix, those security programs where unless we build it ourselves, it's never going to be good enough. And we run, what I'm hearing is CISOs and security programs running into this problem where you build this amazing piece of thing and then now you have the problem of retaining the talent to maintain it or retaining the talent to update it and the engineer is gone and now you have this struggle of replacing. Is that a is that a is that such a big problem in Silicon Valley that we need to rethink build versus buy in terms of security and defensive technologies within your network? Um, is it even a fair question or is it a stupid question? No, no it's, a, it's, a, it's a fantastic question. And you're touching like many things. And it's not just security. Like to be honest, like this has happened on like many, many other teams, like where the rotation, like the the ten year person, is like two years in pretty much every like West Coast company or technology company. Right, right. The tenure so, feels like it feels like everyone is is shifting places within a year and a half to two years, right? Completely, completely. So and that's definitely a problem uh, for like a lot of teams in the sense that uh, people are 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 building a lot, and and there's a reason why they're building. Like for example, when security is building, uh, sometimes it's it's, it's, it's it's not just to be able to control what we're doing and like making it like very focused on like our objective. It's also related with our infrastructure. Like sometimes like, as you may know, like Leaf was the, the one that they came out with Envoy. And so like our infra has like specific requirements that some of the things that are out there might not be able to support. You just might not and- even be available. Exactly, exactly. So like there's some things that we need to build that are very, or like, for example, sometimes it's like people are used to using uh, certain toolings. For example, uh, for our deployments, we use this uh, project that we also build, which is open source, which is called Clatch. And so like some of the things that we want to build, we want to build it on top of the things that engineers are already using, because otherwise they will not use it. Right. And right, so like right. this. So that's that also challenge. another challenge, right? Completely, completely. Like being in, in some of the problems that you will see with vendors, first of all, security vendors are extremely expensive. Like they need security to tools are expensive. I mean, there's a whole security tax. There's like, that's why I mentioned a have and a have not, right? There's the security programs who have all the resources and all the budget to buy all the newfangled tools or even, you know, half useful tools. There's another set of startups and there's another set of companies that just are squeezing by with Windows Defender. I mean, that's real. Completely, completely, and they're they're expensive for no reasons. That's 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 where like my offensive side of things are like, or has like when when you like turn my red flag. It's like why are we paying that amount of money for this tool, which is doing certain jobs, but it's like it's not like the solution to everything. And we're paying like hundreds of thousands of dollars for per per, per, per um, a product like that. Uh, that's that's one of the the main problems that we have. The other thing is that uh, sometimes like every vendor will came out with like the dashboard. And then they're like, if you follow what the, the vendor like- you get dashboard fatigue, right? You're never like, yeah, exactly. Like dashboard everywhere, nobody's looking at them. And, and, and some of the work that we do as a security team is try to push some of the responsibilities to the service owners. Like every engineer should be owning their security. We will help them. 
we trust and verify, you know, and, and work around all, all of those things. But a lot of the work that we do is related with automation. And whatever we are buying or building has to be focused on like how we self-serve uh, our services and how we, we provide automation so that uh, engineers, uh, so we are part of the workflow and we are not like creating uh, different um, workflows on top of the one that they already have. Because if we start like moving away from the workflow they have, they will stop using us. Right, and right. that's that's a fail. Um, but but do you find that that's helping with this problem of churn and the problem of engineers changing jobs every two years? Is the, the ability to build on top of things they're already using is helping, or this 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 engineer movement within Silicon Valley and people jumping to you know whichever company has the highest stock price to give you your RSUs, right? It's definitely a struggle. It's definitely a struggle. Not gonna lie, uh, we uh, the 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 like sometimes services that have no owners and like you need to ramp up people into the, the services and. I guess it's like um, the, some of the solutions to that is like building like good practices and documentation. Right. I so feel the like, ramp up is going to be smaller than. I feel it's going to be super hard to please someone like you, like to bring in a product or a piece of technology to please someone like you, because you're always going to find the weak spots and the weak holes. But I'm, I, but I feel like there must be some good, decent, solid products and technologies out there without giving plugs to companies. Can you talk about like uh, technologies or things that are really impressive to you and the ones that offer the most promise? I'm happy you asked me that question because that's one of my favorite questions on your podcast. Uh, so uh, uh, well, yeah, well, I was... about what you're, what you're, what you're optimistic about or what you like. No, the, like the level of like, the, what's the most uh, interesting tools you have been like yeah, yeah. Uh, interested in. Um, so, there's a lot of, uh, of static analysis tools. Some of them, some of, of which I work with, like CoQL is, is one that I, I really believe this is a really strong uh, tool. Uh, I think that um, a lot That's of that's how Microsoft can, owned, right? GitHub, Microsoft now, yes, correctly. But is, is GitHub a security company? It, they're moving in, in that right? business. Definitely right. They're moving in the okay. business. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, another yeah, topic. But go ahead. And um, I think that uh, CoQL is really interesting in the sense that it's providing like very easy to use data flow um, tool that you can model back classes on. And the, the work that they have done in terms of like um, building a community that will make those open source uh, rules, uh, uh, that, that's fantastic. The one that I, I haven't used yet, but I, I get a demo out of it, and I was extremely impressed, is one that is called Iris Risk, which is doing- uh, Can you repeat modeling. that? I didn't hear. Iris Risk. I don't know how to pronounce it. I, Can you spell I, it? And it's um, Iris Risk. Yes. Iris. I R I U. I R I U S Risk. Okay. Threat modeling platform. Yes, and this uh, it's the interesting thing is that um, it it's pushed threat modeling into um, the in- engineers and developers in a way that is very transparent to them. And I think that it's a lot of like companies that should be focused on, on that area is how we can make developers and engineers doing security in a way that is so transparent to them that they don't feel like they're doing security. Right, the right, way right. that I, I was, I was worried is that the work with uh, draw IO. So like the, the only ask you have for an engineer is like, can you make a diagram of your services? And then like you start connecting things and like based on how you connect it, you can customize the connection. You can customize how like the different networks that you are that people are building things on. And then once you the, the the engineer build that, 
then like you came out with like different controls and like different thread models based on like what they have run. Like there's a lot of customization that needs to be happening. And which is the good part because like that's where the security team that has like good understanding of thread modeling can build all these customizations. And then like this, this the thread modeling being automatically created and then that's from moving into our Jira ticket. So, you know, we haven't implemented yet a lift, but I, the demo that I have seen has been fantastic. So there, there, there are some pretty interesting uh, 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 bits of innovation that you see happening, especially around that code quality. Completely, completely, completely. And, and most of the things that I've seen is, is, is basically trying to scale the security team. Everything that is related with like scaling the security team or providing an API and not a dashboard is something that I would be interested in too. Right, right. All right, Nico, we're out of time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Please come back. I, I, they, 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 I have like 15 things we haven't talked about. We haven't talked about the soccer tournaments. We haven't talked about uh, people versus tools. I want to talk. I want to dig deeper, deeper into the mindset of shifting from offense to defense as well. But come back again. Let's do it one more time. Sounds good. It was a pleasure.